Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Bible Church this morning. Uh, this is the third of uh, our three-week lesson on uh, suffering and the sovereignty of God. So um, this will be the last week, and I'm um, excited that you all are, were able to make it this morning, and uh, thankful for the opportunity to be able to uh, share God's Word with you this morning. Um, just want to give you a little bit of recap of where we've been in case you've missed any of the, the previous two lessons. So the first lesson we talked about, we answered the question, is God sovereign over suffering? And you see these at the top of your handout here. And the answer, the question, sorry, the answer to that question that we found in scripture was yes, he is, God is sovereign over suffering. And, um, and then the second week we talked about, well, what is God doing why does God ordain suffering? What purposes is he accomplishing through the suffering that we go through, the trials, whether great or small? What is he doing? And today, the um, question we're trying to answer is, um, how should I respond in suffering? So how are we to respond to suffering? And if you remember, the first week I mentioned that the doctrine of God's sovereignty can be a little bit hard to hear if you're in the middle of suffering currently. And so the, the best application for the doctrine of God's sovereignty as, as preparation for future suffering. And last week we talked about, well, why does God ordain suffering? And again, that sometimes can be a little bit hard to hear if you're right in the middle of suffering. So the best application of that is really to look backwards at suffering you've been through in the past and try to discern what did God do through that suffering. And uh, today, uh, we're actually going to look at what, how should we respond in the middle of suffering. So the first week is prep, was preparation, the second week was reflection, and today is instruction for present suffering. Another way to put it is the first week was doctrine, the second week was design, and the third week today is duty. So how do we respond? So again, just a little bit more of a refresher for you. The first week we looked at the sovereignty of God and we, explained, and we talked about how really we need more than just the sovereignty of God. We also need to remember the goodness of God in our suffering. And that's really what brings us comfort, that God is sovereign and he's good towards us. And you remember, Romans 8.28 is uh, the verse that we all need to have memorized, that God works all things for good uh, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, even the most intense suffering we go through. The second week, uh, we looked at a few things that God produces in our life through suffering that may not have necessarily been produced had we, gone, had we not gone through the suffering. And that includes things like equipping us to be able to comfort others, uh, revealing hidden sin in us, and um, another one would be like the, t the testing of, of our faith, the testing of the genuineness of our faith. So that's just a quick recap of the first two weeks that we went through. Um, but again, the question we're answering today is, how should I respond to suffering? And rather than kind of jumping through the Bible like I did a little bit last time and looking at different places on how we're instructed to respond to suffering, Today, I just want to, to settle in one uh, place in Scripture and look at how one man responded to suffering and really just linger over one passage of Scripture and draw as much out of it as we can. And, um, and so really, the, the best person to look to how we should respond to suffering is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, also known as the man of sorrows. 
that truly no one suffered as much as he did, and so really um, he's the best person where we should find an example of how we should suffer through our trials as well. So uh, this morning I just want us to slow down and consider Jesus, to consider the trials he went through and uh, how he provides a model for us to respond. So would you all pray with me before we start? Father, we do desire to see Jesus more clearly this morning, to consider him and his sufferings. I pray that you would give us a sobriety this morning, a clarity as we uh, see your son and how he suffered so much for us. And uh, Father, would you give us um, wisdom and guidance for how we are to respond as well. So, Father, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. You could go ahead and turn there, uh, Mark chapter 14. But um, really, Jesus Christ, all throughout his life, endured suffering, uh, whether it be minor trials or more uh, severe trials, but really nothing compares to the last 24 hours of his life. Um, because it was more than just physical suffering that he endured in the last 24 hours of his life. There really was never a man who, who died the way Jesus died. Uh, there, were, there have been plenty of people who have been uh, flogged and crucified, but none of them died the same way that Jesus died. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But it wasn't just his physical pain, it was the wrath of God that he was bearing for all of those who would ever believe on Christ that none of us ever has to bear. So really, his um, degree of affliction and, and suffering was, it was so much higher than anything you and I had ever, will ever experience. And so he's a, um, really a model for us to learn what should we do in our suffering. Um, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, and if you're there, you see that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John. But we're primarily, as I said, just going to camp out in Mark 14 and try to draw as much as we can from it, starting in verse 32. And I'll go ahead and read the whole thing now, 32 to 42, if you'd follow along with me. And they, that is the disciples and Jesus, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, 
Let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. So this is the passage I want us to uh, just dwell in this morning and draw as much from it as we can. And I've outlined on your outline, just, we just want to walk through this scripture with you and just pull out some things that we can see about how Christ responded to this incredible suffering that he was experiencing as he was beginning to taste the, the wrath of God and the burden that he was about to feel the next day. So I want you to see the initial response of sorrow. That's the first point on your handout. I want you to notice the initial response of sorrow as Jesus and his disciples enter the garden. You see this in verse 33. It says that he was greatly distressed and troubled. And then he says to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. That is to say that he was experiencing so much sorrow that he thought the sorrow alone was going to kill him. Sorrow even to death. And Luke's account explains that, um, that Jesus was in agony, and indeed he, his sweat was like drops of blood as he prayed. So just a tremendous amount of suffering and agony that he was feeling. And I want you to notice how this phys- uh, the, uh, the spiritual sorrow that he was feeling manifested itself in physical weakness as well. Do you see that in verse 35? It says, Going a little farther, he fell on the ground. Matthew explains that he fell on his face um, while he prayed. And you just need to know that, that this is primarily caused by the, in, just the burden of sorrow that he was feeling. In this day, it was not common to kneel or, or lay down while praying. Kind of the typical position for praying was to stand while praying. And so this is primarily caused by just this burden of weight that he was feeling that his body could just not bear it any longer, and his legs just gave, gave way under the weight that he was experiencing. So just what I want to point out to you here is that um, what we need to know is that it's not a sin for us to be in sorrow and to grieve when we go through trials and affliction. Um, in fact, Romans twelve fifteen tells us to weep with those who weep. And so we receive instruction here, and and freedom, really, for us to just pour out our soul and grieve when we go through unbearable pain. I want you to see that um, because I think sometimes people get the impression that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God um, is at odds with a, an emotional grieving, uh, but really it could be, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, there should be a distinction we know from First Thessalonians, that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. So there's a, there's a hope when we grieve. Uh, there should be a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian when we grieve and suffer. But I, I just want you to see here that's not a sin to grieve and to ex- even express verbally just the tremendous amount of sorrow and pain that, that you may be going through. So while Jesus is laying on the ground, uh, he cries out to his father. And and this is the next point I want you to see, the honest request of supplication. Do you see that in verse 36? uh, Back in 35, he goes a little farther and he falls on the ground. And then 36, he begins by saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. So for the Christian, praying to God out of our sorrow and affliction is the most natural thing for us. 
there's really no instruction. You know, I don't need to tell you all that uh, you need to be praying when you're in deep sorrow and affliction. Isn't that just the most natural outpouring um, of where you go when you're afflicted and in pain? I want you to notice how Jesus addresses his father. He calls him Abba, Father. And you, you, you remember what this means, right? Abba means dear father or uh, daddy, as we would say um, in America. And, and this is the position, this is the posture that Jesus approaches his father, not in any sort of bitterness or anger, but in, in a posture of affection and love, um, knowing that he's his father. And, and this is how you and I are to approach God, even in the most painful suffering we go through. Because Romans 8.15 uh, explains that we've been given the Holy Spirit and that when we have the Holy Spirit, it enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, uh, because of the adoption that, that Christ, God the Father, has adopted us as sons and daughters. And, um, and you know as well as I that when we're in this midst of, of suffering and pain, that it's, it's common to feel potentially a bitterness towards God sometimes, um, even as Christians, or a, um, to, to maybe view God as a harsh father, or maybe he's punishing me for something I've done. Um, these are common thoughts. I just want you to see how Jesus approached his father. He didn't approach him as a, as a, as a distant God, but as a dear father. And this is uh, instruction for you and I when we go to God in our suffering and pain to not to remember to view him as a kind father who loves us who has sovereignly sent this affliction for a good reason remember his sovereignty and his goodness um, just one uh, cross-reference for you that considers Hebrews 12:5 which says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The King James there says that he scourges every son whom he receives. And, uh, and so it's actually the opposite, isn't it? That when we experience suffering and pain, uh, we may initially feel like God is, is treating us wrongly, uh, but that's because we're not, we're not being renewed by Scripture. If we read Scripture, we remember that God scourges those he loves. And so we can't judge our opinion of God based on what's happening in our life. You remember uh, Asaph in Psalm 73, he said, why do the wicked prosper? And, uh, and so if we judge God's opinion of us based on what's happening in our life, uh, we really come to the opposite conclusion that uh, God loves the wicked because they prosper and God doesn't love me. He's angry with me because I'm afflicted and I have this thing that just uh, continues to give me pain. But it's the opposite, and we need to remember Hebrews 12, that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So that's the first thing, how Christ approaches his father was as a kind father with, with affection. But then look at, look at the supplication. Uh, he says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. So Christ continues his prayer by first affirming the sovereignty of God. He says, he says God, you know all things are possible. Any, you could do anything. 
You could choose a different route if you want, if it were possible, you could choose a different route to save our, uh, my people. And then his honest supplication, his honest request here is to remove this cup from me. And the cup, in general, the cup is referring to suffering and death in general, but more specifically, it's talking about the, the cup of God's wrath that would be poured into Christ uh, as a as a as a punishment for the sins of all those who would ever believe. So very specifically, that's the cup that Christ is referring to. And he, just in his, in his agony, in his suffering, and in his humanity, uh, he asked God to just remove, please just remove this cup from me if it's possible. And again, it's, it's, uh, it's good instruction for you and me that we're allowed to to approach God and to ask him to remove whatever it is that's causing us this affliction. That again, the doctrine of God's sovereignty does not prohibit us from asking him to remove it. In fact, again, it's the opposite. It's because God sends the affliction and he's the one who sovereignly brings the trial that he's the one we should go to to ask him to remove it. And just one other cross-reference I want you to, to consider is Ecclesiastes 7.13, potentially an obscure reference, Ecclesiastes 7.13. It says, Consider the work of the Lord, who can make straight what he has made crooked. So who's the one has, who has made your life crooked? Who is the one who has brought you affliction? It's the Lord. He's the one who has brought this trial to you. And he's the one and the only one who can straighten it. And so that's why we go to him requesting, God, please remove, please remove this from me. Um, and how many times can we go to God asking him to remove it? Um, often, often. Christ went three times praying the same thing. Please remove, please remove, please remove. I want you to see... Um, I want you to consider the fact that um, God may, in response to your prayer, he may instantly remove that trial. I'm not sure if that's, if that's happened to any of you as, who as soon as you have asked for a trial to be removed, God has actually has removed it. Um, but oftentimes there's more work that God intends for the affliction and the trial to accomplish in your life. And so he may allow that trial to stay for a period of time, though you uh, earnestly pray day after day after day for it to be removed. There's no question as children of God that eventually all of our affliction, all of our trials will be removed one day, and that we know with certainty. The question is more of timing. When will it happen? When will God remove this specific trial in the case of Christ, it was not until his death that God released him from this severe affliction and suffering. And that's been, that's been the case for many of God's children throughout history, um, who it was not until, it was not until they, um, God called them home that he finally removed whatever trial it was that was afflicting them for years. So until that day comes when God removes the trial, we're given permission to pray for the removal of whatever trial or affliction is is in our life, but there's a certain manner in which we're to pray, and I want you to see that. Uh, just continuing on in verse 36, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Please remove this cup from me, yet 
not as I will, but as you will. And this is the next point, just, just moving down through the scripture, I want you to see is the godly response of submission while he's praying. As heavy as the burden was for Christ, as heavy as this affliction was, as much as he wanted it to be removed from him, his greater desire was to submit to whatever God's will was. And you see that three times it says he prayed the same thing. Father, remove this from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. I want you to see how close together, uh, how short the distance was for Christ between when he prayed for the removal and when he submitted to God's will for his life. Um, in our English Bibles, it's only the space of a, of a period and a space where God prays for the trial to be removed, and then immediately he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Um, unfortunately, in, in your and my life, um, the distance between those two prayers can often be a long time, perhaps even years, if we're going through some intense trial where we pray, um, we earnestly pray day after day after day that this trial may, may be removed, yet all the while not submitting to God's will, kind of kicking against the goads and saying, God, I want you to remove this from me, I want you to remove this from me, almost praying in an attitude of complaining rather than submission. But for Christ, it was just instantaneous. He, he asked the request, and then he said, not, not as you will, but as I will. Sorry, not as I will, but as you will. Uh, another cross-reference I want you to consider is 1 Peter 5, 6, where Peter commands us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Let me read that again. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's 1 Peter 5, 6. And if you didn't catch it, there's two little words in there that I mentioned last time which are so important. The word so that. Okay? It says, humble yourselves so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And it's almost as if a humbling or a submission from that passage is a prerequisite for God to lift the burden from us that until we humble ourselves and submit to God's plan, he will not remove, or remove the trial or exalt us. That's almost what 1 Peter 5, 6 seems to be implying. And again, it's the case sometimes, I've heard stories from some of you in this room, it's the case where sometimes God, um, on the same day, that we finally surrender our will to whatever God's will is, sometimes on the very day, that's when God chooses to release us from the trial. And I know talking from a couple of you, that has happened. And it's almost like an in, in animal being, <laughs> like an ox or something being trained by a yoke, that as soon as he finally stops fighting against the yoke and submits to the yoke, then the, the yoke or the leash can be removed from him because he's been trained by it, and it's no longer necessary. And so sometimes that is God's way of working in our life, where just almost instantly, it's almost as if the trial was designed to put us in a place of submission. And once we're in a place of submission, he removes it, and the trial is no longer necessary. But oftentimes, that's not the case, where... Um, we pray for God to remove the trial. He doesn't. We submit. We say, Father, how long will I, will I need to bear this? I'll bear this as long as you want me to bear it. 
And yet God doesn't remove it. He continues to, to apply the, the pressure of the trial and the suffering. Um, and, and the reason for that is he's, he, the trial is not yet done. There's still more that he's accomplishing that he wants to accomplish in your life through the trial. Back to 1 Peter 5, 6, there's two other words I want you to, to hear He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And so it's not necessarily the case where the day or the instant that we submit to God's will is the same day that he removes the trial from us. Rather, there is a proper time that God is waiting for. There's a day he's appointed for this trial to be removed And it will not happen until the exact moment, the proper time uh, for it to happen. Because submission to God is not necessarily a one-time decision, but rather a lifestyle, a decision to, uh, to wait. It's a lifestyle of waiting and laying down under the providence and the care of God until he decides to remove this trial from us. One more analogy for you, um, back to the, the animal and the yoke. Though, though, when, though when we submit to the trial, God does not necessarily remove it immediately. He does make it more bearable. And again, the analogy is an animal who is being um, trained or yoked. There's a saddle put on him. Somehow he's being trained. If he fights and kicks against this yoke, Uh, Really, he's just making it more difficult for himself. And once he submits to it, he finds that the the burden is easier to bear when he finally just submits to whatever the yoke or the saddle is placed on him. And it's the the same in our life as well. Uh, Just a a funny story for you. I'm not sure how many of you know, but uh, my daughter broke her arm earlier this week. And uh, she's in a, so she's in a cast from her, her forearm up to her elbow. And I thought this was just such a fitting example. But the doctor, when we got the cast on it, the doctor said, uh, okay, little girl, you have to wear this cast for three weeks. And three weeks from now, we'll remove it, okay? And so there's a day has been appointed where the cast will be removed. And there's a certainty the cast will be removed three weeks from now. But until then, it's not going to be removed. And uh, she can either choose to, to uh, fight against the cast and be aggravated by it and grumble and complain and make all of our <laughs> lives more, more miserable in the meantime. Um, or she can patiently wait three weeks. We've told her, honey, three weeks from now, you will get this off. I promise you. Uh, then they'll put a different cast on her. But she'll get at least a, li- <laughs> they'll get at least a little bit of a break uh, when they take it off and she can scratch her arm. Um, but it's, this, it's the same thing. She can wait patiently for three weeks until it's removed, or she can grumble and complain and make it uh, more difficult for all of us in the meantime. Well, the difficulty for you and I is we have no idea when God will remove this trial from our life. We know for a fact, if we're in Christ, eventually one day when we Uh, When we go home to the Lord, all of the pain will be gone. But it may be that God has designed for uh, the affliction to be removed at some point in this life, or at least become more bearable. Uh, And until that day, 
God calls us to live by faith and trusting and submitting each day to him, waiting uh, until he sees fit to remove the burden from us. Well, let's go back to uh, Mark 14 and see uh, Jesus in the garden. We were in um, verse 36. So he had just prayed, all things are possible, remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And as he's praying, I want you to see next, he takes a break from praying and he goes to receive encouragement from his disciples and he finds them sleeping. That's the next point on your outline is the fleshly response to suffering of sleep. Let me read this again just to remind us. And he came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. And I'll stop there. So the disciples at the end of a very long day, uh, it's late at night, they find themselves unable to stay awake even for one hour, and they fall asleep three times. Three times this happens. They fall asleep in the garden where Christ goes. He's in agony. He comes back. He's trying to receive some encouragement from his, his friends, and they're sleeping. He goes. He comes back. He goes. He comes back. Three times they're praying. But the question I want you to think about is, is the question of why are they sleeping? I'm not sure if you've ever seen I had never seen this before. But the question, why are the disciples sleeping? It says here in Luke and, and in Matthew that their eyes were very heavy. Uh, but if you, look at the, if you look at the passage in Luke, we actually get a pretty important reason why they're sleeping. And you can write this down or turn to it. Luke twenty-two forty-five is uh, the passage where we learn why they're sleeping. Luke twenty-two forty-five says this: And when Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. Have you seen that before? I had never seen that before. Luke says the reason they were sleeping was for sorrow. Not just exhaustion, but for sorrow. It wasn't just a long day and a late night. Um, it was, it was, they were so burdened with sorrow and so, so weak that they just wanted to do nothing else than to go to sleep and numb the pain and just not even think about the intense sorrow and the agony that Christ was feeling, that they knew they would feel in, in a short time. The the burden that they were feeling just, just weighed their eyelids. That's the reason why their eyelids were so heavy, was the burden on their back, along with Christ, just weighed their eyelids to close. And perhaps they mistakenly thought that they would receive more energy if they, if they would sleep. They knew that the next day was going to be a hard day. Christ had warned them. Um, and so maybe they thought, well, maybe I should just sleep instead and get more energy for tomorrow than, than praying. 
Either way, um, Jesus responds in, in somewhat of a compassion, somewhat compa- uh, in a compassionate way. Uh, he says in verse 38, he says, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so Christ comes to them and he understands. He says, I know you are weak. I know that you want to. That's what that means. The spirit is willing. They wanted to. They earnestly desired to stay awake and pray. But just the exhaustion from the sorrow and the full day um, caused them to just fall asleep. But you and I are prone to the same temptation, are we not? When we're in just such deep sorrow and agony that we just want to escape and numb the pain any way we can. The example here is an example of, of sleep. You just want to sleep the day away. I just want to get away and I'm just going to take some Benadryl. I just, I'm tired of feeling this pain. I just want to go to sleep. Uh, it can also look like uh, excessive eating. It can look like alcohol. It can look like drugs. Uh, anything to just escape this pain. And that's what the disciples were doing. I just want to go to sleep because of this sorrow and just, for, and just forget about it. And that's, you know, I, I experienced this a couple years ago um, when my wife and I went through something difficult. I found myself just, just eating a lot of food, wanting the hunger, just not there to be any hunger pains at all. Um, I was constantly thinking about uh, vacations our family could go on. I just want to go to, want to go to Disneyland. Let's go to Disneyland, honey. Let's uh, have, have some fun memories, just not think about the pain anymore. Um, and all of those things are just diversions, just trying to cover up the, the pain and the, uh, the sorrow that we're feeling. And uh, it's, it's something that you and I are called to be um, aware of and called to be on the guard against as a, as a fleshly diversion from, from going to God, the one who can comfort us and who can bind up our wounds. It's a diversion. So the question is, when we feel this crushing weight of sorrow, what are we to do? Uh, well, I just want you to consider one verse, Hebrews 12, 3, which is just exactly, provides exactly the reason, the, uh, the answer for how we're to handle this burden of sorrow. 12.3, Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him, which is Christ, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or be faint-hearted. Again, those two words, so that, it's a cause and effect that when we consider Christ, when we consider the suffering that he endured, it provides a way for us not to be faint-hearted and to grow weary. Again, you could, just re- you could just flip those two statements the other way. So that you may not be faint-hearted, comma, consider Christ and his sufferings. And that's what we're doing this morning. I want you to see this intense agony and the suffering that Christ experienced on behalf of you and I, and this is God's way of giving us endurance by considering Christ and acknowledging what he went through and seeing what he accomplished on the cross. So back to, back to Mark 14, let's continue in the garden. That was the fleshly response. Christ goes three times to see the disciples, and they responded out of their flesh by trying to avoid the sorrow by just numbing the pain. Finally, I want you to see the final result granted to Christ of strength. And I'll back up. We'll start in verse 41 again. Uh, 
And he came the third time and he said to his disciples, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then just the first part of verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came. I just want you to see here that the man who went into the garden was a completely different man who came out of the garden. That Christ in his agony went in so burdened with his sorrow that his legs couldn't even stand and he fell on his face and prayed. And throughout the course of while he was in the garden, something happened that enabled him to come out of the garden walking confidently towards Judas, who he knew, he knew exactly what would happen. And yet Christ rose up, got off the ground, and walked intently towards Judas. And I want you to, I want to ask the question, why? Why was Christ able to do that? What happened in the garden that gave him this strength to endure? Well, in very simple terms, God the Father answered his prayer while he was in the garden, not by removing the cup from Christ, but giving him the strength to endure it, to bear the cup that he was about to drink. And this we're reminded of in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, just such, a, such an important verse to remember. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he also provides a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is to say, God doesn't provide an escape route for you to escape out from under the temptation. It says he provides a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, it's the escape of the trial is the ability to endure and remain steadfast in the trial. And that is what the Father did for the Son in the garden. And specifically, there's two things he did. In Luke's account, again, we learn something that we don't learn from Mark and Matthew. Luke 22:43 says, There appeared to Christ an angel from heaven, strengthening him while he was praying. So that's the first thing that God did, was he sent supernatural assistance to Christ to strengthen him in the time of his suffering. And the other thing he did was he remind, the father reminded the son of the joy that would come after the trial was over. And again, that's from Hebrews 12, 2. You know this verse. It says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so too, you and I, those are the same ways that God strengthens us. He reminds us of the joy to come after the trial. Again, it may not be until the very end of our life when God finally removes this trial. And as Christians, we're called to submit to whatever God's will is, even if it means a lifelong pain and suffering, knowing that one day, uh, when we look back on our suffering, it will be light and momentary, even if it had been 60 years of suffering. From the vantage point of eternity, looking back, whatever the most excruciating pain we feel here Paul says, is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory to be revealed in the future. 
And that is how God strengthened Jesus. That's how God strengthens us in our trial, by considering Jesus, by considering the, the, what he endured um, at the hands of, sin, at the hands of uh, sinners and, and what we have waiting for us laid up in heaven, uh, secure and, and certain. So uh, Jesus, having prayed in the garden, emerges strengthened and ready to, um, to bear the burden. Uh, the disciples, having slept, emerge from the garden weak and unable to bear any of the affliction that was about to happen. And before the sun would even rise, they would all be scattered away from Christ. So would, would God grant us the grace to be more like his son than, than more like the disciples? And we need to be praying that God would strengthen us. And we need to be strengthened in the moment of, of suffering. And I know that many of you, even this morning, are, are in the moment of suffering right now. And you need to be reminded of, of these things. So I, I hope this has been a, a kind of a sobering time for you this morning as we've thought about Christ and how he responded to suffering and just to remind you what we saw, so first of all, we saw that, that sorrow is not a sin, that as Christians we're given the, um, the freedom to grieve. Secondly, we are to approach God as our kind Father, even in the most excruciating pain, not as an um, angry Father at us, but as a kind Father who works all things for our good. And also he gives us, again, the freedom to pray for the removal of the trial, Repeatedly, not just one time, but repeatedly he allows us to pray for the removal of it, yet pray in a manner of submission, not as, not as I will, but as you will. The fourth thing we saw was the warning of a fleshly response to suffering, of trying to seek to numb the pain in, in other ways besides go, coming to Christ and, and, and bearing ourselves before him. And, uh, and finally, we saw how Christ was given the strength to endure, and those are the same ways that you and I are given strength to endure, to remain in the trial, and, and to uh, be strengthened through it. So let me just give you two concluding thoughts here uh, to summarize this that I haven't mentioned yet. One, Christ's experience in the garden was not just a model or an example for us to follow. It's not less than that. It certainly is an example for us, but it was, it was so much more because Christ was actually, um, he was actually accomplishing and doing something that he was about to bear the wrath of God for you and for me and something that you and I will never have to experience. And so it's more than just a model for us. Primarily, this passage is for us to see the agony of Christ in the garden for because of our sins, and also to see as a result the love of Christ for us, the fact that he went through such agony out of love for us. That's the main thing we want to see here. And secondarily, it is for us to, to use as a model for how to respond. Um, the other thing I want you to see is that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us. We have a, a priest, we have a Savior who, is, who has suffered in every way and more than we have, and yet he did it without sin. And that is um, such a wonderful reminder the morning, this morning, the sympathy of Christ, that he's unable to sympathize with us. 
that uh, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not extinguish because he knows our frame, right? He knows that we are weak, he knows that we're but dust, and he has sympathy towards us. Well, um, this has been a a wonderful uh, three-week series for for me, and I hope it's been for you as well. Um, I want to make just one more... (laughs) Uh, mentioned before I go. I'm not sure if you saw, but there's some books back there on the table for, for free for the taking. I put out some books last week, and uh, they were all gone at the end of the Sunday school lesson. And so I learned that uh, you all like free things. <laughs> and you don't like to come and talk to me, because the week before I had them up here, and I said, you just come talk to me, and I'll give them to you. And no one came up here. But when I put them at the back, they were all gone. So, uh, there's more books back there. There's three. There's the, the one little booklet I, I've been mentioning each time called Behind a Frowning Providence. It'll take you 30 minutes to read it, and you, it will, what it will do is it'll open up for you um, all sorts of other books and resources to pursue. And so, if you had to choose one, I would just choose that one. Also, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. It, this book must be the best introductory book to suffering uh, and the sovereignty of God. And if you have not read it, it's very easy to read, very biblical. He lays out a biblical case. He goes into hundreds of scriptures that show the sovereignty of God and suffering. And finally, I also noticed that these are all gone now, but there's another book that was out there called The Crook in the Lot by Thomas Boston. It's, it's challenging to read uh, because it was written 300 years ago, but... Um, it is, it's, it's been the best book I've read outside the Bible on how to understand suffering, God's sovereignty, what he's doing, and our response to it. So if you're, if you're up for a challenge, if you've already read Trusting God, you're up for a challenge, um, you need to get the crook in the lot. And they're all gone, but there's a sign-up back there if you want the book to write your name down. So, and we'll get that book to you if, if you so desire. So please, those are all available back there and grab one. Uh, Would you all pray with me? Father, I thank you for giving us a taste this morning of the suffering and agony that your son endured. Father, would you um, use scripture, would you use your word and your Holy Spirit to give us endurance, to give everyone here endurance, uh, to remain in the trial that they are in? Would you strengthen them here? Father, would you encourage them? And Father, would you remove, uh, if there is anyone here this morning suffering, would you, Father, remove that trial from them so that they can uh, pray for the purpose of praising you and glorifying you uh, even more. But Father, we do pray in submission to your will that if it's your will that these trials remain, that you would um, strengthen uh, them to endure it. So Father, would you um, uh, remove our minds from distractions as we go and worship you corporately? And Father, would you um, move in your spirit to help us understand your word and love you better. We pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.